I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In China's northwestern province of Xinjiang, the government has locked up more than a million Uyghurs, a Muslim minority, in a vast gulag. The whole province is a surveillance state within a surveillance state. The government claims it's de-radicalizing a population prone to separatism. People in Xinjiang enjoy a happy life. People call for good order to restore in Xinjiang. China, of course, is strongly opposed to any torture, any persecution, and discrimination of any ethnic group people. This is not the case in China. The reality is that it's carrying out crimes against humanity. We're going to take a look at how the repression is tearing families apart and preventing Uyghurs from even having families. We'll speak with exiled Uyghurs forced always to look over their shoulders. And we'll find deeper complexity in the party's ethnic repression on a visit to a tourist town in southwestern China. The government is persecuting not only adults, but hundreds of thousands of children, too. Reporting by The Economist has unearthed government documents that show not de-radicalization. It's a campaign to crush the Uyghur's Islamic faith, to erase their cultural identity, to chip away in their minds and in their bloodlines at what makes them Uyghurs. It's difficult to get first-hand accounts of what's happening. Clearly, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang are unable to speak out, but some brave souls have managed to escape and to tell their story. Our China Affairs editor, Gadi Epstein, has been speaking to one of them. For Zumrat Dawood and her three children, Fridays were probably the most terrifying day of the week. That was the day when officials would question students at schools in Urumqi. The uh, interrogators were looking for clues about the students' lives at home. They wanted to know whether parents prayed or used Islamic greetings or talked to the children about the Prophet Muhammad. If the answers weren't satisfactory, they could result in a family member being sent to what they call a vocational training center or the camps in Xinjiang's new gulag. As Ms. Dawood told me, uh, her children would be nervous that they would answer wrong and get her sent back to the camps where she spent two months in 2018. 
Kaysi gəbdir, ezib tıp qalsaq siz deyən əkirkdə. Bir əgəbdə xatad et salamızmı dəb, so the Dawood family's experience in, in this regard is, is quite common in Xinjiang. Absolutely. People focus when talking about the Uyghurs on the detention camps. But really, Xinjiang is an open-air prison for 12 million Uyghurs. There's surveillance of both low-tech and high-tech. Ms. Dawood told me of an app installed on her phone and where afterwards when she used traditional Islamic greeting on the phone. She was called minutes later by her local police asking her why she did that. And across the region, families will be appointed to write and read articles praising Xi Jinping. Others might have to write and read hands to ethnic harmony and some have to praise other policies that the party is imposing on them, including the placement of, quote-unquote, Han relatives in their homes. And, and given that much of this has, has come out now, I mean, how do officials in Xinjiang justify that, that level of surveillance? Chinese officials say that they are doing this in the interests of the Uyghur people. They say that they are fighting the uh, three evils of terrorism, extremism, and separatism. They say they are making Xinjiang safer, and they say they're making the Uyghur people happier. But in reality, the experience of Uyghurs in the camps and even outside the camps is one not of training for the workforce, but of indoctrination, of trying to strip them of their religiosity or of any sort of cultural practices which strike them as efforts to be distinct and separate from China. So what happens to the Uyghurs who are deemed to have broken these many tiny rules? Well, Uyghurs like Ms. Dawood are placed in the camps. Her offenses were receiving calls from Pakistan, where her husband is from, visiting Pakistan a number of years earlier, accepting money from a foreigner who was a family friend who lived in China, and securing an American visa. These were all things that police asked her about before sending her straight off to a detention camp. But she's a parent. I mean, what happens to the, the children of Uyghurs who are, who are detained? Well, this is a problem that the Communist Party itself is having to face up to because they are struggling to deal with the children of the parents that they detain. In local workgroup documents that we obtained, the officials use a chilling terminology to refer to children whose parents are being held by the state. They're called dankun, or single hardship, or shwankun, double hardship, depending on whether one or both parents has been sent away. And what the documents also reveal is that they're struggling to keep pace. They want to place these children in boarding schools, basically. And so they have spent a tremendous amount of money expanding boarding facilities at schools across Xinjiang just in the last couple of years. And what are these schools like? Is this not like a, a kid's version of the, the gulag you describe for adults? That's not too far off. I mean, these schools, many of them have high security fencing, and that's even true of pre-kindergartens. And they are places where the kids are kept. These are cited even in state propaganda, sort of celebrated. But those kids are as young as months old. The propaganda describes it as being well-fed, well-cared for, happy, learning the national language, Chinese. The point of this propaganda is to convey the notion that they are helping the Uyghur children but obviously the effect is much different. And we've seen uh, testimonies from Chinese teachers who volunteer to work in these areas that describe children in pretty bleak 
conditions and in terrible emotional states. But what do you mean by diluting the culture? On the surface of it, this just looks like uh, oppression. That's right. It's oppression, but it's oppression that's really designed to reduce the influence of the Uyghur people and even their numbers. I mean, there are policies supporting interim ethnic marriage, trying to encourage Uyghur girls when they grow old enough to marry Han men, and there are rewards associated with that. Those can include a job, a flat, or even keeping family members out of camp. And then there are other ways that they are literally trying to reduce the growth, at least, of the Uyghur population. China enforces limits on family size in Xinjiang. So women are being fitted with IUDs at a much higher rate than the rest of China. Women with three children, which is the limit in rural Xinjiang, are subjected to sterilization or at great risk of that. Ms. Dawood herself says she was subjected to sterilization in 2018. So what do you think is going on here? I mean, it seems the goal for the Chinese authorities is, is more than simply to, to break the spirits of the Uyghurs. I would say the situation meets every category of crimes against humanity, literally has been defined by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. You have forcible transfer of population, you have imprisonment, you have persecution against an identifiable group, you have the enforced disappearance of persons. It's a term that's codified in international law, and I think it's pretty clear. And, and given that, how, how should the world respond? What is to be done about this? The most important thing is that governments need to act. They should offer asylum to Uyghurs. They should sanction officials in Xinjiang that are responsible. They should ban goods made with forced Uyghur labor. And most important, governments should speak up. I think this is the right moment to call for action. You could see maybe China's clout cracking a little under the weight of these horrific revelations. There are more people standing up to China and fewer standing with it. Today, there is a sign of hope for human rights. And there is a sign of hope for the oppressed uh, Uyghur people in China. We just had 39 countries sign a statement by Germany at the UN criticizing China over the Uyghurs. This is a clear signal that concerns about the Chinese policy towards the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang is growing and it is a worldwide concern. That's an increase of 16 over last year's Similar statement. The Uyghur people deserve no less than for governments and others to speak up. Gotti, thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you, Jason. There are perhaps one and a half million Uyghur expatriates or exiles around the world. Precise numbers are hard to come by, but it's clear that the flow of Uyghurs has slowed to a trickle. Escape from China, though, is not escape from repression. Wherever they end up, the surveillance, the fear, the threat to families they left behind stays with them. There are about 400 Uyghurs in London, and they really do know each other. I spoke to probably about 50 people. John Phipps writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine, he spent more than a year getting to know members of the Uyghur community in London. I'd been reporting the piece for about four months, and I'd been to lots of different Uyghur restaurants, which was commonly the place I'd be invited to. The restaurant owners had obviously been informed that I was coming. To our left, there were 
two women speaking in Mandarin. When I looked at them, they looked like they were wealthy students or tourists. After a long time, I said, well, shall we talk about the situation? The situation is what people call it. The people to my left, two men, continued to talk as though I hadn't said anything. And the woman in front of me just gestured her head very gently over to these two women. And then she started writing something down and she slid a note over the table face down. And I turned it over and it said in block caps, I don't want to talk with people here. After about an hour had passed, I said, well, is there somewhere else we can talk? And as though it had been pre-prepared, they stood up and led me back through the restaurant, behind the counter with a nod to the owner and down these stone steps into this bare basement where there were chairs laid out. At this point, I began to panic. It wasn't rational. There is this effect that people's paranoia has on you. It is contagious. It was my most vivid experience of the pure fear and panic that comes from this atmosphere of being watched. It was very hard to gauge someone's level of paranoia initially, but you spoke to some people and there was an absolute assumption that there were many spies in the community. And you spoke to other people who said there is a fine line between being careful and being paranoid. And you spoke to some people who were desperate for the people around them to stop being so fearful. So what we so, uh, discussed, like, so, what do you, do, um, you, do you want to know? I met Ablakim Rahman, who runs an Uyghur restaurant, he was actually the first person I interviewed. So I've just thought I'd ask you a couple of questions about, basically about your job and about the food you cook. I had walked you know, into the restaurant kind of hoping to talk to him about so the importance of preserving his culture else, you know, so in London, but I wasn't expecting him to be as direct as he was. So we just opened this restaurant, just main purpose, just to keep our culture just outside in China. He said to me very quickly, we started this restaurant to keep our culture, to preserve what we have. Everything they destroyed at the moment. So even you can't speak your language in China now. He said to me that inside China, in Xinjiang, there was no way to maintain the culture that he had grown up in. It had, in effect, been outlawed. Talking to Ebekim was the first time I got a sense of the scale of grief that the Uyghurs abroad were feeling. I said, do you know people in Xinjiang? He said, yes, my family, my friends. Oh, I, I can't uh, contact me. They already be lost contact, yeah. Have they? Three years now. Three years. Mm. Most people lost contact with their families in spring or summer of 2017. You can't phone it or text message or whatever. Okay. Everything like blocked. 
Really? Yeah. He used to send pictures of his children to his family. They sent some symbol of picture, for example, heart. And they would send a heart, and that was their way of saying, I'm okay, I'm here. But that's it. That's it. Every single one of these people knows someone who's in a camp. And every single one of them have relatives who are in Xinjiang. And while there are direct methods of control that people have reported on, there is remote surveillance of Uyghur communities around the world, one of the most powerful tools that is used to silence the Uyghurs in London is fear, fear for their family. They feel that the Chinese state has a gun to the heads of their mothers, their sisters, their brothers, and sometimes their children. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. The horrors of what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and all over the world are just part of a wider program of what President Xi Jinping has referred to as sinicization. The Communist Party is officially atheist. An overwhelming majority of the country is of the Han ethnicity, viewed by many as the real Chinese. Religion is formally permitted, and non-Han Chinese are citizens just the same. But one need only look to Xinjiang to see the effects of sinicization. Yet there are exceptions. The folk religion of seafarers on the coast is encouraged, for example. Elsewhere, the ancient writings of a minority ethnicity are not only allowed, they're played up for tourists. I recently traveled to Lijiang, which is a very pretty little town in Yunnan province in southwestern China. Stephanie Studer is a China correspondent for The Economist. And I wanted to go because on shop fronts, public buses, and road signs, there are some rather peculiar looking symbols. What kind of symbols are they? This is in fact an ancient form of writing, which we believe was first used in the 7th century. They are pictographs of the Dongba script. There are about 2,000 of them. And uh, they range from basic representations of the sun and the moon to rather gorgeous detailed images of animals, deer and, and tigers. This is a script that is native to the local Nashi ethnic minority in Yunnan. And it is also the world's oldest surviving script based mainly on pictographs. And how are these characters used? Well, it was a script that was developed for the shaman priests of the Dongba faith 
a folk religion that has roots in Tibetan Bon religion. And so when these priests were called upon, they needed to recite long chants that often lasted throughout the night and over days. And so to remember their chants for various divine favours, they would jot down the sequence of the ritual using these pictograms. But how has it survived since the 7th century? Well, almost died out, but about a decade ago, local officials realised that, in fact, this interesting script had great tourist potential. And so they started putting it all about town, encouraging shop owners to use it. And so it has enjoyed a sort of revival in Lidiang, mainly thanks to the tourists. And what about the Dongba priests? Do, do they still use the script? As time has gone on, fewer and fewer Dongba shamans have been practicing these rites. Um, Nowadays, we think that there are about 600 of them left in Yunnan and neighbouring Tibet and Sichuan province that are able to read and write the script. And this is why it is still commonly known as the living script. So I met one of these Dongba priests. He now continues to work at a temple outside Lijiang, And he told me that when he was growing up, everybody was too busy farming to learn it. And he said that now he feels everybody is just too busy absorbing China's dominant Han popular culture rather than their own minority ethnic heritage and history and script. But it has to be said that that other minority ethnic cultural markers, uh, in particular amongst the the, the Uyghurs, are are being suppressed elsewhere in China, yet this effort seems to have the the backing of the government. Yes. In Yunnan, while I was traveling around the province, I did see signs at bus stations in uh, remote parts that encouraged locals to use Chinese characters and to speak Chinese if they wanted to be civilized. But the region really gets off lightly compared to those other ethnic minorities. I spoke to a local father of the Nashi minority. He told me that his son was learning Dongba script twice a week at his primary school, as well as Nashi nursery rhymes. And Li Zijing, who is the head of the state-backed Dongba Cultural Research Institute, that is the main academic body pushing for the revival of Dongba script said to me that it wasn't just about getting the children to learn pictographs and remembering the script, but also about allowing young Nashi people to grasp what she called the very spirit of their own culture. Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.